Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. And welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. Today, I am extremely excited to have on someone who I think of as one of the, I think one of the strongest product leaders I've ever had the privilege of knowing, as someone who's also one of the strongest pragmatic practitioners I've ever had the privilege of knowing, someone where we actually have a recording of this gentleman giving a presentation, gosh, it has to be 20 years ago, about mm. sort of the implementation of the pragmatic framework. And the founder of Pragmatic would have every new employee listen to it because they're like, if anybody gets it, it's this guy. So we're super excited to have you on, Frank. We have the incredible Frank Tate joining us today. Well, thank you. And by the way, I believe that if I recall correctly, that presentation is 1997. And I think I still have the PowerPoint from it. Nice. Excellent. We still have the recording. We actually still have like new salespeople listen to it. It it does a wonderful job. And we've been able to work with you at several different companies and talk to you at several different companies that you've brought in the framework. And I think not only do you embrace what it means to be market driven, but you have such a ability to kind of think methodically about how to approach something and then put that into action to make it really come to life for both you and for for your team. So it's always exciting to talk to you, Frank. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. For those listening who haven't just heard me expound wonderfully about you, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now. Well, I've been in the educational technology software world for over 40 years. First came to know Pragmatic through the founder, Craig Stull, back in 1994. And I forget how many total classes I've taken, but I brought the Pragmatic Framework into about 17 businesses, Mm. most of them through acquisition. And so I retired from my last full-time role, which was at Frontline Education, where I was responsible for build, buy, and partner. And then since then, I've been doing board work, helping a couple of nonprofit companies and some growing ed tech software companies, you know, providing you know, advisory work, consulting work, and sitting on some boards. Excellent. All right. So often we think about the framework as a way we plan out our strategic growth for our products, right? And we often think about what should I add on to my existing products? What other products should I build? One of the things that you've also used the framework for is how do we use the framework to support sort of inorganic growth? How do we use that framework when we're thinking about mergers and acquisitions? And there is 
not a space where there are more mergers and acquisitions than in the tech spaces we serve. So I think this is such an interesting approach to the framework and to a sort of M&A. Yeah. Well, it starts out with a, a simple, you know, I actually take the build by partner box in the framework mm. and then basically use that as an overlay for the entire framework. And it's a simple principle to start with. You build the things that are your key differentiators. You buy things that are speed to market, speed to revenue, speed to technology, and you partner for the things that don't create business value for you. Mm. And so one of the things when you're in the M&A world, you, know, you may be a rule of 40 or a rule of 50 customer. And if you're not familiar with that concept, it's the sum of your organic growth percentage and your EBITDA. So for example, if you are a 20% organic growth company generating 20% EBITDA, you are a 20 plus 20, a rule of 40 company. And so when you're looking at M&A and built by partner, things that will be rule of 40 or better for your business fit into the build or buy category. Things that don't fit into that go to partner. And as much as it may be a pet of someone in the management team, if it can't support the overall thesis of growth and profitability for the business, then you just need to, and your customers need it, that's where you partner. So, so that's kind of a high level framework for how to look at things. And then, you know, the build is pretty straightforward. That's just go through the framework as you normally would. The buy is interesting because once you decide that you want to either acquire a customer or if you're doing acquisitions, you know, it's either you're expanding into something you're not already doing or you're consolidating by buying a competitor for things that you already do. So when you're buying a competitor, the framework is pretty straightforward because you already have it. And so now it's just how do I understand this other business and how do I bring it in and, you know, add their customers to my customers while I keep their customers and, you know, maybe keep their technology or sunset their technology. But, you know, when you're doing a roll up for something you're already doing, the framework is pretty straightforward. Where it gets a little more interesting is where you're doing an expansion because, what you need to do is approach the framework as if you were building it yourself. Mm. So you go through, you do your understand the market problems, understand the market definition, understand the buyer personas, the user personas, understand the buyer experience, you know, what are all the trends in the space? So you need to do the same level of leveraging all the things that you would do in the framework for a new product if you're moving into a new area. And so that you have your basis of knowledge to be able to evaluate potential acquisition targets, because you need to know the market the way you know the market. Don't just take it the way the company you're looking at looks at it. And so then, you know, just like you would do a product gap analysis, you do a business gap analysis. You're taking your understanding of the market based on the framework and then and then talking to that target company about how they experience the market and understand what do you know that they don't. And to me, if they're not a pragmatic company, you tend to know more things about their market than they do. And then what do they know about this market that you don't? And it's the combination, you know, a one plus one equals three, because you know things that they don't, they know things that you don't. And that's what makes, that's how you create value in terms of your thesis to buy. I've always used a stage gate framework you know, stage one is the market research for do we want to be in this space at all? Does it does it fit our growth 
does the market fit our growth criteria, you know, profitability and growth. And I'll just do an aside for a second. You know, one of the acquisitions I did in 2015, it was a competitor and it was actually going to reduce our organic growth because about 30% of our growth came from taking their customers away from them. Ah, uh, but it was very accretive to us from a profitability standpoint. At that point, we were about a 25% EBITDA company and acquiring this company, we were able to take that to 60% EBITDA. Oh, wow. Uh, because we could take out all sorts of, you know, we didn't need an office. We didn't need their backend infrastructure. You know, we could take out a lot of unnecessary costs and take out a lot of risk, which is a whole different, that's a, that's a conversation over a beer. Um, <laughs> but that was one where, you know, we were a rule of 40 company, but because we, even though it was zero, it was actually negative 10% growth overall, but it was 60% profitability. It was still plus 50. So it was worth doing. So pardon the digression there, but no, it's you know, a great when, example. Yeah. When you're, you're looking at the company and you're looking at the market, you're saying, okay, does, does this market make sense for us? That's stage one of the stage gate, you know, stage two is now, okay, which companies fit that profile? You know, do they have the growth profile? Do they have the profitability profile? Or is there something we can do differently to make them fit the growth profile? So another several examples I had at my work at Frontline, we were acquiring companies that had four or five salespeople. They were regionally based and we and they had very limited marketing. And so we could plug them into a sales engine where we had 30 salespeople. You know, we were, we were going to all the national conferences already. And so we could take that product and plug it into a distribution system. So we had we had something we could do very differently there. You know, or we had a much more robust technological infrastructure. Some of those companies were still hosting it themselves. Uh, I had one company that had lovingly bungee corded PCs to kitchen racks in their data data center. Oh gosh! <laughs> um, and, yeah, and it was like, okay, well, we can put this up on the cloud and eliminate all that hardware, all that cost, all the maintenance of all that. You know, because, you know, now we have one single source, one set of source code, so we can apply it to all customers because it's a true SaaS product instead of having to go manually update every PC. You know, and I think this was pre-Octopus. So I think Octopus is still out there. But there are things like that where you can say, what do you do differently? So that's stage two is, does this company make sense? Stage three is then when you engage the company and now that's when you're having the conversations and using the framework for those and saying, you know, asking questions around all the different boxes in the framework. So it's a great way for diligence is to say, okay, you know, what is your buyer experience? What are your user personas? How do you understand them? And again, you're comparing that to your understanding. You know, are you going to be selling to the same buyer? Is it a different buyer? Is there a connection between the people that buy from you today and the people that are going to buy from the company? If you acquire them, you know, how do I get to that buyer? You know, is it a walk down the hall reference? Is it the same buyer? You know, all those things fit in. You know, you have to look at how they look at their competition. What is their product roadmap? What are they doing? How are they doing it? Is it a standalone product or does it, in some way connect with the products you're already selling. So are you selling to a new customer or are you selling another product to an existing customer? And that was a big part of what I did in the ed tech world is, you know, we were either selling to colleges and universities or we were selling to school districts. 
So it was a known market. And it was all about, you know, more things for the salespeople to sell to the same organization, not necessarily the same buyer. But by going through and looking at all the different aspects of the framework, it gives you a pretty good overview of how their business operates. And then it lets you do the gap analysis to say, okay, now if we're going to bring them into the, how we do things, it lets you know where, where are the pieces of commonality, where are the big disconnects, and then it lets you plan for you know how do you have a smooth integration because not everything has to be integrated day one. And so it's figuring out what, you know, where things are going to go smooth and integrating, you can integrate them quickly to build confidence on the, on both sides of the acquisition that, okay, we can work together here. You know, the, the one thing that in the education world is we had common values is we want to do the right thing for the teachers so the teachers can do the right thing for the kids. And, you know, I boiled it down to the biggest thing that we provide in value of our software is we save teachers time is we take non-value added time away from them by automating things. Hmm. And so it's the value proposition was really that simple. And so what are different things, where are different places where teachers feel frustrated, where they're wasting their time or administrators feel frustrated, they're wasting their time and how can we make their life better? And so, but with those core values, the core values connect with the customer. And then it's the, how we do things is when you show the acquired company, how they can do things, how you do things, and if you learn from your acquired company, if they do something better, adopt it. Mm, um, yes. And I think that's one of the, just because you may be a bigger company or the acquiring company doesn't mean you do everything right. Learn from the people that you're buying from. And you know that goes a long way toward the people being acquired, seeing how they're bringing value to the company as to why they want to stay as part of this acquired company. And then with the, uh, where there's disconnects, is have it gives you a basis for conversation is you can say here's how we've researched the market you know here's how we understand you research the market help us understand how we reconcile these and it brings people to the table for meaningful conversations mm-hmm. about how you integrate the business and that, that's you know part of what i did at frontline is we had i think i did 16 all together 14 were stellar successes one was middling and one was not <laughs> when you think about mergers it's a and pretty good track record though frank that, that, and it, part of it is it started with culture fit first is they had yeah. the right culture and then you know did the business that we were trying to acquire meet our rule of 40 growth model and how would it meet the rule of 40 growth model and then we spent a lot of time understanding how they understood the market before we even went to visit them so i'll, I'll give one example we uh, one of the things that uh, Frontline was known for was basically Uber for substitute teachers. When a teacher was going to be sick, they had a mobile app. They could say, I'm going to be sick. I need a sub. We knew all the subs who were qualified and available. We pinged their phones with qualified and available jobs. This, you know, a teacher could wake up at 6 in the morning, and a sub could be in the classroom at 730. And so we were doing 50-some-odd million of those a year. Wow. And so it's you know, got just good back-end automation, but we decided to move into special education because there are a lot of inefficiencies in that whole process. And so we started out by doing market research. We talked to teachers, we talked to principals, we talked to educators in colleges and universities, and we mapped out what the special education landscape looked like, what the workflows and processes were. And then we started talking to companies who were in that space. And we found one in New York that we felt was the closest fit 
to what we were looking for. And then we went, because this was a major expansion, we had no experience in this space at all. But because we had that basis, we could sit down with the founder, it's a founder-based business, and say, okay, here's how we look at it. And you know, he had grown in three states. All of his customers were New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Hmm. And that we had a national distribution system, so it was a nice, okay, we want to take this and take it across the rest of the country. But we had to figure out how do we take what we know about these three states and move it to other places. Uh, and it was a, a lot of collaboration and working through that and then doing things like, you know, bringing things up to scale, you know, scaling marketing, scaling sales, scaling backend operations, you know, actually adding developers to the team to go faster, layering in the, the systems like, you know, using systems like AHA for product management, JIRA for, you know, all the bugs and issue tracking and getting everybody up on a consistent understanding of what version of Agile we were using. So all those kinds of things, okay, how are we going to make this work? And then we went and we did, I think, what, four other acquisitions just in that space because of the variances in states. It was easier mm. for us to go buy customers in states and then work through reconciliation of how do you make it come back together because it was easier to buy into the state rather than try to organically grow because the market was very, very sticky. It's you know, 95% plus retention year over year but slow growth and get, you know, you're, if you don't have credibility in the state, if you don't have references in the state, people aren't going to buy from you. So doing acquisitions was actually a faster way into those segments. Okay. There's like a million things I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure I want to hit everything people have at home, but, but a couple of things I think is really interesting that you talked about. I mean, by using, so first it's obviously you do a really good job of thinking about I think a lot of us end up looking at mergers and acquisitions that are sort of opportunistic, right? Mm -hmm. Which can be good, but can be problematic, right? Whereas if we start first by going, what space do I want to be in? And you can you can still rewind, right? If you get an opportunist opportunity, you can still go back and go, okay, the first question is, do I want to be in this yeah. space? Yes. And that's a straight yes or no, regardless of how charming the people on the other side of the table are, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's that's the big difference because in the in the M and A world, you have bankers and investors who are you know will come to companies and pitch them, yeah. and the question is, is it worth your time to listen to the pitch? And so, smaller companies tend to say, okay, well, do the bankers know this industry better than me? Short answer is no. Is that, they, <laughs> is that the bankers are there to help sell a business? You know, it's it's like a realtor; they're out there representing the seller and that they're coming up with a list of all the different companies that might possibly be interested in buying this. But you have to know what you want and why you want it and how you want it. And also when you want it, because there are sometimes mm, a great point. things it's, we're not ready for this yet. So uh, at frontline, we, we call it the P word. When, when do we go into the payroll world? You know, mm. we, we did all things HR except payroll because payroll is messy. You yeah. have all kinds of different rules and logic and people get fired if payroll checks don't get out right. So it, it was like we, we were going to wait until we were much bigger before we had and had our processes settled with the scale that we wanted before we moved into that. So, again, it's not just whether you want to be in there, but when you want to be in there. That's a great question. It can be too early. It can be too late. Right. Yeah. We've already gone a different direction. But I think it's a really important question to ask as an organization before you consider the yeah. opportunity at hand, or certainly to your point, before you go searching, 
Yeah. Second question is, is this the right company? Um, yeah. And I, I think using the framework around that is just, it's, and I'm not saying it's super smart because it's our framework. I don't even mean that, but it's like, there's so many interesting things about that. First, you know, on, on one level, you just get to understand how sophisticated they are. How well do mm -hmm. they understand the business? How intentional, how strategic are they about how they approach their products and their markets? And that will make a huge difference in success. We all know that, yeah. right? Then there's that how it overlaps with yours, because to your point that not only shows you where you have gaps, but also starts to build that roadmap forward. And you gave a couple examples where it was clear to you that that roadmap forward also involves, it shifts how you have the conversation. One of those things with mergers and acquisitions, right? You, you woo them, it is a partnership, but there's always, there's going to be cuts, there's going to be things, there's going to be things that go forward and things that don't, right? That's how you make it work economically. But it's really hard when you're making those individual decisions, but when you can use those frameworks to, to kind of give a shared mission and shared understanding, it raises the level of the conversation about those gaps before you get into the weeds, which you'll need to get into. But if everybody understands why, then the decisions in the, make a lot more sense and they can come together versus always feeling so adversarial. It's strategic alignment, and it's it's a way to achieve strategic alignment. Yes. Uh, my favorite timeline for doing acquisitions, and this works on smaller, mid-sized companies, not doesn't work on the mega deals. Is typically you'll engage with someone, and you'll get to talk to the CEO or the founder, and then it will reach a point where they'll say, "Okay, I will now allow a small group of leaders to be part of this process." Mm -hmm. And so you have to sell them. And so part of it is using the framework and explaining this is how we do this. This is what we understand. This is what we know. There's an old rule that says if you're at your table, you're part of the solution. If you're not at the table, you're at risk. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so how do you make the that, that management team feel that they are valued and their insights are valuable? And so that's what this, this lets you build that framework. And then I've always felt, you know, when you look at a company – now, do they do right by their people? Because mm -hmm. if they do right by their people, their people will do right by their customers. And so that was a, that was always one of the cultural ones. If they don't do right by their people, there's no point. They may have some good people. They may have some good customers, but we'll, we will take their customers in the market. It's not worth it. We, we might, might buy their technology, but we don't want their people. And to your point, it may take you a little bit longer to win their clients versus yeah. to buy them, but you'll get there. It, it yeah, shows up in the end for sure. Yeah. But so the, if, if they do right by their people, then one of the one of the keys is with an acquisition is you have to retain their customers and yep. you as an acquiring company do not retain their customers. They're the acquiring acquired companies, employees have the relationship with the customers. They're the ones that retain the customers. They're the ones that keep the sales pipeline and have that, that those deals continue to flow through. And so you need to structure your integration of the business so that the managers that you work with and the leaders that you work with can convince their employees that this is a good deal for the customer and for the and for their people. And then that's what allows you to do that. And that's again, that come back to the framework as building that uh, building the trust level, providing a strategic framework. To have the so that you can have the conversation with the management team of the of the target company, so that they can then in turn have that conversation with their employees. That's a 
really good point. Like the no acquisition goes well if you don't keep their customers. I mean, I'm sure there's an exception, but like, let's be honest, that's the goal. And you're right. You're not the one who's going to keep the customers. Yeah. You, you, they have to keep the customers. That's a, so, that's I mean, a strong, I, strong yeah, reminder. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I can give you a horror story where, you know, did one acquisition where closed the deal at 10 o'clock in the morning, they called a company meeting. Okay. All you guys are fired. All you <gasps> other guys, the new company buying you wants to meet with you at lunch. Oh gosh. <laughs> and then, okay. And then, okay. Now, how do we, how do we now talk to all the customers and let them know what happened? The goal was to retain 95% of the customers. We retained 99% of the customers and 95% of the value because we lost their biggest customer. Oh. But that was a different situation. The customer was using multiple products. They decided to consolidate on, on three competitors in the market. They were using two others, not us. And they, they stuck with the other half that they already knew. But you, again, that, that was a lot of, okay, now how do we recover from this? Because it was a, it was a competitor and they didn't want to know anything. They didn't want their people to know anything. It was only, what, I think four people that knew about it in the company. Yeah. I think that's one of the big differences between acquisitions that expand and competitor mm-hmm. acquisitions, right? I mean, the acquisition to expand, the question it really focuses a ton on the first Like the first question, do we want to be here with your competitor? You're already there. It's so many other questions. What's it going to take? What are the synergies? What are the differences? Where are the gaps? And I do think often with a competitor acquisition, like you said, it's much smaller circle involved and sometimes more emotional. (laughs) What I'll say is that this is a little little bit of inside baseball is acquisitions that are below the Hart Scott Rodino threshold which I'm not sure what it is now, probably about $130 million of enterprise value. Uh, below that, you can be much more flexible. Above that, you're, you're stuck in lawyer land. Yeah. Where you, until it actually closes, you can't do a lot until the deal closes. Whereas smaller deals, you can do a lot more alignment prior to the deal closing. Yeah. But is there anything else just on, on the competitor acquisitions? Anything else you think that makes them different or experiences you've had where you're like, oh, that was a little different or I should have done this? <laughs> Those um, well, the, good. The, the biggest one is being prepared for, to, to deal with the employees mm-hmm. and that, you know how things are going to work. A lot of it gets into it begins and ends with communication. Have a communication plan. Know how you're going to talk to your, your communication segmentation. Who are your customers that are also their customers? Who is in your sales pipeline that are their customers? Well, let me see if I can. I, have, I, I was joking earlier. I said I have a 900-line spreadsheet with things, and this is actually on my spreadsheet. What's that? <laughs> I said, I don't think you were joking. I think you have one. Oh, no, <laughs> I know you do. I'm like, I'm, there's everyone here is like, can I have that, please? <laughs> yeah, I only do that for people I work with. Um, so it's, you know, think about, okay, who are, you know, who, you know our customers, their customers, our prospects, their prospects. So you got four columns and then you have the intersection. So who is our customer that's their prospect? Who is our prospect that's their customer? And you have to think through the communication for all the different cross tabs in those segments. So cross tabs is the statistical word for you know X, X and Y. So all the different combinations and permutations. There's a lot of consistent messaging. And this is where you come back to the positioning. Yeah, is is the pragmatic positioning in in terms of, okay, we you know what's our core messaging, and then what pieces of this messaging are applicable to each of those segments. So it's position positioning and segmentation are critical 
throughout a whole M&A process, you know, because you have to have the communications right and the cadence of communications right. And that, you know, I go back to some of the things in that in adult learning theory is if, if you lecture someone or give something someone a document, at best, they retain 10% of it. If you can demonstrate it, that gets up to about 30%. But if you're, if they are actively engaged, it, it's up to about 65%. And so it's got to have repetition. So the more you repeat the, you know, it's how many times things need to be repeated for things to actually sink in for the people to get it and for the customers and the prospects to get it. It's one of those lessons, Frank, that I, I feel like I have to remind myself and my product teams and my marketing teams regularly, like, I know you've told them. That's yeah. not the same, right? And and people think, I already told them that, or they'll get frustrated. How do they not remember? I'm like, they have a whole other yeah. world of things they're focused on, right? Yeah. And it's also like when you've got a strategy, it's grounding the conversation in the beginning every time. Yeah, We are trying to accomplish this for this. So yeah. we're going to do, right? And it can feel like, oh man, I already covered that. But I can't overstate how important it is to do that and how I wish I was better at doing it myself. Yeah. It makes such a difference. So that, that's why I come back to the positioning because it's it's about how are we creating value? Yeah. Uh, and that and it's the reason that we're doing this is because we are creating value for our customer by doing this. And we have validated that we are creating value this way. And so things like the customer stories this is why we're doing this. This is why they see value in it. And one of the keys in M&A, it's the tricky part. You have to be far enough along to do it is to actually bring some customers into the process. Mm. A lot of times in an M&A deal, you'll have basically the customers have the right to write a refusal on transferring the uh, a license ah, right. or a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not using the right word here, but it's, you're going to have to bring them in early anyway. Yeah. And so put an NDA in place, have a conversation. Hey, we're thinking about doing this. You know, you're a, you're a key customer. What do you think? You know, to, you know it's your, your references or their references. And then you're talking about it and it's, okay, well, would you be willing to be quoted on that? Yeah. And then so it's those customer proof points and the early customer proof points do a lot in terms of, again, I've, I've been in the education market. It's a highly reference. It's a reference sale. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not a normal bell curve. It is a squashed bell curve with more innovators and a lot more laggards. And so they want to see somebody like them be successful before they buy. And so you, to be successful, that's what you need. And so you have to approach the communication of the, the target company's customers as if they were new customers. So your whole positioning and everything else, they have to understand, they have to understand what's in it for them. Because in, in an acquisition, you have to convince the employees and that's not, not to convince them. You have to be able to clearly explain to the employees of the target company what's in it for them. And then once they get it, what's that they're okay, then they can begin to think about what's in it for their customers. And so you have to work through that hierarchy, giving them the time and the space to process for themselves so that they can, from, you know, from a good foundation, then talk to their customers. Absolutely. I also think for, you know, if there's someone listening and they're like, eh, I'm an A. I don't do M&A yet. Maybe M&A is not product. I yeah. think it is such a, first of all, I think it's super interesting uh, on yeah. all sides, being on all sides of it. Yeah. But I think it is a place where strong product leaders or, or product managers can really make a name for themselves and really show, like really make a career of the strategic part. There are lots of challenges with M&A, but there are few opportunities to really like, 
influence so quickly and so directly the economics of an organization than through an acquisition, right? And how it changes EBITDA and revenue lines. Like it takes a lot of, 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 of sales to equal a $10 million M&A, right? I mean, there's like, and so it is a really strong way that we can use some of the skills like you talked about understanding the framework to really make a sizable impact on the organization in a way that will affect and can sort of elevate you and affect your career and pass in a, in a very different way. Yeah. And I think you know, the other side of it is M&A. I've always approached a company as build, buy, and partner. So build is the product management for what we're building M&A for what we're buying, but it's also what are the partners that we need? Because when you understand a market problem, your solutions are never going to be 100% resolution to market problems. And there are pieces that the customers need that you can't that you, you can't do or don't make business sense for you to do. And Absolutely. so that's where, you know, the, the, to me, at least at the head of product, you have to have that sense of what partners do I need and to do what and how, and then what makes a better whole product solution or a whole solution for the customer. Yeah. And yeah. That, uh, those partners tend to, the strong ones basically become your farm system for acquisition candidates because some of those things that I'll say the ones are the ones that are in the not now category, mm-hmm. that's your farm system. So you get to know the company mm. long before you buy them. In yep. terms of their comp, their culture, their people, how things work together, how do you handle mutual customers, how do mutual customers think about things, and that's test a, a drive assumptions of, on just how compatible, like just how much your market's demand is. There's a lot there without yeah. some of the overhead and investments yeah. of of and, an M and A. And so again, the partner activities are to me a part of the funnel for M and A because M and A is a long game, not a short game. And you know, I was talking to someone the other day. Uh, they were asking me about a company and it's like, well, I've been chasing them since 2014. Mm. So, you know, they, they, they make sense here and here, you know, they're not willing to engage yet. Um, But I I have not given up on, I still try. So it's a long game. And and the more you can build a relationship with a company, the more data you have to make a good decision as to when to come together, you know, if, if to come together or when to come together. Awesome. All right, Frank, we talked about lots of different things today. If you were going to have listeners do, who are thinking about M&A, do two things differently tomorrow based on what we talked about today, what would you have them focus on? First is make sure you understand what's the environment that you're operating in economically. What's your growth? What's your growth? What's your profitability? So again, are you a rule of 30 company, rule of 40 company, rule of 50 company, rule of 100 company? You know, what, what are you? Because you need that criteria as a filter because there are uh, opportunities out there. You can waste a lot of time in M&A looking at things and evaluating things that don't make sense. Hmm. I am still tracking 1,590 companies Holy in EdTech. Okay, 1,590. <laughs> wow. Um, and so most of them are not targets. Mm-hmm. But I, it's, it's, again, a stage gate process. How do I spend my time wisely? Yep. So know which ones fit, know which ones I need to keep an eye on, okay, because they may be bought by somebody else. So like there was an announcement this morning that a CEO of a company that I tried to buy now is going to be the CEO of a company that I want to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, okay, so I need to keep up with what's going on. So yep. 
All right, so now there's an email. You know, LinkedIn went out. Hey, congratulations. Let me know when you get settled in. We'd like, like to get caught up because that's, that's how I, I keep going with it. But a lot of the inbound stuff, like I get four or five emails a day from bankers pitching companies. Mm-hmm. And if the company is not on my short list, sorry, not now. No. So I'll, I'll spend 30 seconds looking at an email, but I'm not going to spend the time to go get an NDA worked out and spend the legal cost to get an NDA worked out. I'm not going to spend the time going through a informa- confidential information memo to send. You know, I'm not going to spend time on that. I'm not going to spend time on a call with the CEO to do a fireside chat to get to know them. You know, I'm doing the fireside chats, getting to know people, meeting them at conferences, just keeping up with them for the ones that I'm interested in. So if if inbound comes in for somebody I'm interested in, I'm all over it. But if it's somebody that I've already said, they're not on the growth profile, they're not in the right segment. If they're right, but not now, I'll talk to them. But if they're not right, the the best way to do it is don't waste your time on the stuff that's not going to be successful. It is a lot of time on each step, right? And yeah. in the, every step you take, it gets harder to, to break off. <laughs> so making those the right gates at the right time are, are critical. It's knowing what it's knowing what's not worth your time. And so, again, my my stage one on looking at stage stage gate, gate for looking at opportunities is literally thirty seconds. Mm. Is that it, it's worth thirty seconds to me? If it's not worth, you know, if it meets the other criteria, then I'll spend an hour on it. And then if it's worth the if it's worth the hour, then I'll go into more time. But you know, the key is to be able to look at a lot without having to waste time. But don't go don't go deep if it's not going to work. Absolutely. Or it's, if, if it doesn't fit the profile, so that to me that's you know know the correct you can't you can't do that type of evaluation unless you know the profile. One of the challenges is some management teams don't have that profile because they know what they are, but they talk about what they want to be. Yep. And so the, the question with M&A is, does it take us on the path to where we want to be? Because, you know, you may be a 100% growth, negative 30% EBITDA, which means your rule is 70. Well, okay, how is this business going to be accretive to us? Does it help us on the top line? Does it help us on the bottom line? You know, is it accretive? If it's not accretive, it's not worth any time. You, know, you may need to have a brief conversation for you know, to keep the line of communication open, but it's not worth energy or other people's investment if it's not going to be accretive to your business. Excellent advice, Frank. Cool. All right. Thank you. I just thank you for joining us today. I always have fun listening to you. I am confident everyone here did. You always drop infinite knowledge. Mm-hmm. I have went to the training in 2005. I've been here 11 years. I feel like I know the framework really well. And every time I talk to you, Frank, I think, oh, I hadn't really thought about it like that. That's fascinating. <laughs> and I love it. So I really appreciate the time. And again, I'm, I'm on the uh, community. So if uh, people want to reach out, you can always find me on the community. Yes. Come on into that pragmatic alumni community and, and listen to the sage. That's great. All right. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. That does it for today's episode. Thanks for joining us and join us next week when we tackle another great topic to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 